Hello, greetings. We're so glad that you've joined us. We're glad for your interest in spiritual matters. My name's Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. Now, as conscious creatures, we humans seek to find meaning in existence and in all things. Uh, questions about who am I and why am I here press strongly on our minds as they've pressed upon people for thousands of years, as long as we've been able to ask those questions and wonder about them. And it's good for us to ask sometimes, what is life all about? Now, for Christians, there's the true answer to that question, and that is the one that we can find rooted in John 17, 20 through 23, that we would obtain relational unity with God and one another, as God has within himself, and in that way to truly enjoy eternal life. Because God has made us in his image, and he desires to maintain relationship with us, his offspring, in Genesis 1 and Acts 17. But as seen in Romans 3 and 5, we have strayed from the ways of God and are subject to sin and death. But God has reconciled us through his son, Jesus. And that reconciliation with God is also paired with the right, good, and healthy way to live, and a call for resistance against the forces of darkness over this present age, and the ability to find true reconciliation with our fellow man, as we can see in Galatians 5, Ephesians 2, 4, and 6. And ultimately, our hope is in the resurrection in Jesus, the eternal life in the presence of God, in Philippians 3 and Revelation 21 and 22. That's what life is all about for the Christian. And as Christians, we know these things, right? But do we live like it? Has this knowledge in our head penetrated the heart and the actions? Because unfortunately, we too, all too often give lip service to what we know is true from God based on what he has said in Scripture, but really just capitulate to alternative meanings for life given to us by the world. And we shouldn't be too surprised by this, unfortunately, because the pull toward worldly ways of thinking is very great, and a lot of people are wedded to them. And so, in order to exhort one another toward relational unity with God and one another, we do well to expose the various purposes to life made ultimate in the world that's also offered as its substitutes. And today, let's consider one that is the great motivator for people for generations, whether they recognize it or not, and that is power. Is life all about power? Because throughout time, few things have proven more seductive and all-consuming than the lust and thirst for power. Think about how you learn history. Isn't history really the story of who was able to maintain and maintain power? How they handled challenges to their power? How they leveraged their power? And who obtained power from them or instead of them? You know, all history is, is this group of people came around, they existed for a while, they were conquered by this group of people, who were in turn conquered by this group of people. I mean, we can make a, a, a singular line from Assyria to Babylon to Persia to the Macedonians to the Romans to the various states of Western Europe in the medieval period, to the ascent of Spain and then the ascent of France, the ascent of England, and now the United States of America. And in that story is the story of the various world powers that rise and fall. But even now, in the modern world, so many of our ills and problems relate directly to the lust for power and doing whatever proves necessary to maintain it. Why do we see so many times in our lifetimes nations with leaders willing to destroy a very high percentage of their people and the land to, for, to what end? Well, they want to do it to keep power. You know, uh, in the time of, of, of our conversation here, it's, we see that very clearly in Syria. Uh, we're seeing it being done in Yemen. 
uh, before us it was done in many other countries, and no doubt after us it will be done to even more countries. Uh, it's a very sad and distressing thing. How is it that so many nations have a few rich people controlling everything, and everybody else is impoverished? Well, if everybody got more access to resources, that might be a challenge to their power. And part of the reason that they found power and obtained the power was in order to enrich themselves and those in their circle at the expense of others. In America, we see this all the time. Why do politicians do or say whatever it seems to take to prove willing to flip-flop, to make complete fools out of themselves, to completely seemingly abandon the principles upon which they were elected uh, in order to obtain some advantage? Well, to maintain their power. And it can look quite depressing and distressing indeed. Because in the end, how can you get people to vote for you or support you? Well, you could win loyalty through great deeds or devotion, sure. But uh, there's a reason why people keep going back to what Machiavelli said. Because he wasn't wrong. Fear motivates people more than love does under the sun. In the world, the world works. And so if you can get them to fear you, or, as we're learning today in America, better yet, to have them fear what the other person would do to them if they got in power, then they'll keep voting for you. They'll keep supporting you. But all too often we look at power and we look at it in terms of great men or people who have been invested with power. We don't necessarily look at it in terms of uh, other people, uh, the little people of the culture and society, which often, more often not, is us. But where is class anxiety? Reproach for those worse off or better off than ourselves, domestic abuse or things of that nature come from. Those are issues of power as well. And that's the thing we need to remember. Power is manifest in many forms. Because, yes, there's kings and presidents, there's legislators, there's judges, there's military, there's police, there's your boss. They definitely have power, roles of power. But there's other ways in which power is leveraged. For instance, there's economic power. Well, who controls the money? How much money a given person has can dictate their level of influence. There's relational power. There's power issues in any kind of relationship. The parent-child relationship, the husband-wife relationship, extended family. Uh, you can see it with coaches and uh, athletes. You can see it with friends. You can see it with teachers and students, uh, associates and things like that. And, of course, there's even personal autonomy. Now, the ability to decide for yourself what you shall do, what you shall believe, and so on and so forth. Now, perhaps the whole concept of this message seems strange to you. Well, I don't know. Um, I don't really have any issues when it comes to power, so why are we talking about this? I mean, power is a problem other people have because they have power and I don't, or there's no issue at all that I have in terms of power. Well, it's, it's easy to think that way until the moment comes where true disempowerment is felt. I mean, sure, I don't live in Washington, D.C., and I don't have any prominent positions of authority in life in terms of what happens in our country, uh, not even in the state capital of where I live, and, and that may be true of you as well. We may not give a lot of thought to power and power dynamics, but uh, it is not a non-issue. Power issues only seem invisible to us if we tend to be the ones who have the power. And we can know where we truly stand when it comes to power by asking how we would respond to times situations in which we no longer have power. For instance, what happens if you go home today or something happens today and you find out that you've been robbed of your possessions or somebody actually uh, puts a gun to your face today and tries to take your stuff? If you've had that experience, I'm sorry for that, but how did that make you feel? 
it, or how doesn't how would it make you feel if it happened to you? You'd feel first that loss of power, that weakness, that vulnerability. What if someone treats you with a stunning lack of respect? Or what if somebody, like we mentioned, the different authority figures, what if they abuse that authority at your expense, where they were using the authority they get were given to do things to you that were not right or expect you to do things that were immoral? If a natural disaster would destroy your possessions, or if you were diagnosed with a chronic or terminal condition, and you didn't have a lot of treatment hopes, how would you respond? What would you feel in a situation where now you are no longer the one in power? What if there was a threat to your life or to the life of those whom you love? What is your natural impulse in those circumstances? It's at those times when our the power that we do have is threatened. The power we have or we imagine that we should have is threatened. Uh, that we learn how important our sense of empowerment is for our self-conception and our well-being. And so we are not immune to this just because we do not uh, live in the halls of power. Uh, we need to explore power dynamics according to what God has made known in Scripture and because we all have our expectations and insecurities about power. Now, the Scriptures make it very clear that power is something that exists, and it comes from God as the source of all power and is designed to be used according to His purposes. In Romans 13 and verse 1, Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. In Matthew 28 and verse 18, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Him. Uh, the rest of Romans 13, verse 1 through 7, and 1 Peter 2, 11 through 18, express how God has established earthly governments for the purpose of maintaining justice on the earth. And the Christians are to respect and obey these powers. In Ephesians 5, 22 through 6 and verse 4, wives are to submit to their husbands, husbands are to love their wives, children are to honor and obey their parents and the Lord. In Romans 14, 11 through 12, Paul says, uh, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And also a similar message in 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11. That as individuals, we're empowered to decide how we're going to live, how we're going to decide what we're going to do, because we're going to be giving an account of that. We're going to be held responsible for that, uh, how we've used what God has given us and how we've treated other people. We're to use what God has given us as good stewards. So power is absolutely a thing, and it's something that all of us have to some extent or another. But the scriptures also speak of the powers. Uh, these are ostensibly spiritual beings created by God to wield authority over heaven and earth in various ways and who ought to do so according to God's purposes. In Mark 13 and verse 25 and Luke 21 verse 26, Jesus seems to speak about these powers. In Ephesians 3 and verse 10, Paul suggests that, in fact, the eternal purpose that God has uh, manifest in Christ uh, is the demonstration of his manifold wisdom uh, in the church before the to the principalities and powers these principalities and powers are the ones who are seeing this uh colossians 1 and verse 16 these principalities and powers are made for and in christ and in first peter 3 and verse 22 these powers have been made subject to jesus so these things exist in scripture uh and it's clear that some of these powers have sinned and gone against god's purposes and they maintain great influence over the world today so Matthew 25 and verse 41, as Jesus is about to condemn those who have not acted well, he says that they are to go to the hell of eternal fire prepared for Satan and his angels. 
In Ephesians 2 and verse 2, uh, Paul says that we all once lived in transgression, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, ostensibly Satan. In chapter 6 and verse 12, a very important passage, Paul says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in those heavenly places. Well, thanks be to God in Colossians 2 and verse 15 that Jesus triumphed openly over these powers. Literally, the concept there is that he led them in triumph. And then we have this very interesting thing in Daniel chapter 10. In Daniel 10, he uh, saw a, uh, a vision that was very disturbing to him. And he mourned for three weeks. Uh, he was very distressed about it. But then he saw a, a great... Uh, uh, he's in verse 10, we're told, And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, a man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the prince, of king, the kings of Persia, excuse me, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the, the vision is for days yet to come. It's a very bizarre episode, because earlier in the chapters, Daniel saw a vision. He's troubled by it. He's been praying to God about it. And this angel comes, almost a month later, saying that from the very first day his prayer was heard, and he was sent with the interpretation, but the was resisted by the prince of the kingdom of Persia, and Michael had to come to fight him off so the angel could reach Daniel. Which seems completely bizarre to us, and we, we want the, easily to mythologize it, but... Daniel takes this completely seriously, that there are these spiritual beings who have power and exercise free will, uh, contrary to the purposes of God in the spiritual places, and these are called the powers and principalities. What's gone wrong in both in terms of human power and these powers and principalities? Well, rebellion against sin, God, and death. Rebellion against God, excuse me, which has led to sin and death. Now we know from Genesis 3, Romans 5 and 8, that Adam and Eve's transgression introduced sin and death into the world, and with them decay and corruption. And we can see from Matthew 25, 41, Ephesians 2 and 6, and, and this episode here in Daniel, that the powers and principalities have also rebelled against God's purposes in various ways. That sin and corruption are evident in the use of power not to serve and benefit the whole, but to benefit oneself and one's people to the active harm and detriment of others. This is a kind of worldly wisdom rooted in selfish ambition and jealousy that James condemns in James 3, 14-16. And so we must confess that wherever there is power, there is strong potential for abuse and suffering. So recognizing these things, how should we as Christians view, excuse me, and exercise power in the past and dealing with the powers? Well, we have a, a great example from our Lord. In Matthew chapter 4, also seen in Luke chapter 4, when Satan is tempting Jesus uh, with his three temptations, um, we read beginning in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 8. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. But then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. 
It's very interesting that Satan would offer Jesus the kingdoms of the world. Because if God is a creator and all authority comes from him, how could Satan offer Jesus power? Well, some have offered that really Satan was offering something he couldn't really deliver. That's kind of foolish if you think about it. What would be the temptation if Jesus knew Satan didn't have the goods? Jesus could have just called him out. You can't do that. No, no. In Romans 1, 18-32, 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, and Ephesians 2, 2, we have some clues. Because God gives people over to sin when they no longer honor him as God in Romans 1. And 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, we're told that the God of this world, who is Satan, has blinded the eyes of people, and they've trusted his delusional lies. And uh, all of us were given over to him and his power, Ephesians 2 and verse 2, when we trusted in those lies. This is something evocatively portrayed in Revelation chapter 13. The dragon, Satan, is the one who provides power to the beast. Uh, the beast is the Roman power embodying the emperor, and the false prophet is Roman religion. And they deceive the people, and the people worship them, thinking, well, who can overcome the beast? Who can conquer the beast? And so Satan is a spiritual being God has made for good, but has exercised his free will to rebel against God's purposes. Mankind is a physical being God made for good, but he has exercised his free will to rebel against God's purposes. And this is how people find themselves under the power of the evil one and his agents, both fleshly and spiritual. And this is the way that it's been since the fall. It's the way of violence. What's so curious about this beast in Revelation 13 is that when he's described by John in Revelation 13, he's portrayed in terms of the beasts that Daniel saw in Daniel 7, 2 through 8, who embodied Babylon, Persia, Macedonian, and then Roman powers. And so God is showing us that Rome is not really new. Uh, Rome was just one in a series of nations who seized power through violence, imposed it with violence, and were only destroyed themselves by violence. Because in the world, how do these things work? Well, those who are able to exercise power through coercive force maintain that power. And different empires have exercised that power in different ways, with different purposes. And we might think some are more enlightened than others, but ultimately they're all based on that exercise of violence. And so domination through force has been the way of the world. The glorification and pursuit of the power of the prince of the air, eagerly sought by many uh, throughout time. And anybody with sufficient ambition will embrace them. But notice that Jesus rejects Satan offer. He would not serve anybody but God. And he instead offered a very different alternative, something that he expresses to his disciples in Matthew chapter 20. His disciples are uh, creatures of the world, which shouldn't be surprising. They are all in for power and prestige. They envision the kingdom of God in Christ in very worldly terms. They're expecting Jesus to rise up and to destroy the Romans the way that David destroyed his enemies, to inaugurate a a new kingdom uh, which would make David seem puny and pathetic by comparison. And so they're trying to jockey to get to the left and right hand of, of Jesus for power. And yet, what does he have to say to them in verse 25 of chapter 20? You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. He's speaking about this worldly way of of power. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so here Jesus 
again, shows two paths. There's a path of the world, which may involve uh, obtaining power, exercising power over people uh, through coercive force, economic means, or whatever else. But there's the way of the kingdom of God in Christ, which is the way of service, the way of humility, and the way of sacrifice. And what the those same disciples would learn and eventually do is to proclaim that Jesus gained the victory over sin and death through his death and resurrection in Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 15, 20-58. And in fact, Paul goes so far as to say there in Colossians 2 and verse 15 that Jesus led all the powers and principalities in a triumph when he suffered on the cross. We've been talking about Revelation chapter 13. But it exists because of what happened in Revelation 12, where Satan the dragon is cast out of heaven because he was defeated, because Jesus died and was raised again and ascended to heaven. And it's then followed by Revelation 14 through 15, where we see that the Christians uh, who suffered persecution and death at the hands of the beast ultimately gained the victory over him when God provided final judgment and it was no more. And this, therefore, points us to the way of victory over the powers and principalities of this world. Matthew 16, verse 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's the way of service and suffering. And this is uh, the reason Peter holds out Jesus as the ultimate example for believers to persevere despite persecution in 1 Peter 2, 18-25. That he has given us this model to follow, that he, uh, when he was reviled, did not revile in return, but he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And he suffered and died, that we might die to sin, to live in righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. And this sounds great, but what's gone so wrong then, if this is the way it's supposed to be? Well, as we've seen, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection herald a kingdom of God in Christ. That is a very different order of living than we see in the world today. It's the way of service and suffering, modeled on Jesus' example, time and time again. It is never coercive or manipulative. It glorifies God through humility, service, and thus the manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22-24. Uh, it can embody the message of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. But the problem is that Christians throughout time have proven all too willing to do an end around Jesus and return to Satan to see if that original offer uh, for the kingdoms of the world is still on the table. Soon after the apostles passed on, a power in the church began to be consolidated, first in one bishop over a church, then in a bishop over many churches, an archbishop over bishops, leading to the whole papal and, and various kinds of ecclesiastical hierarchies that you can see in churches to this day. After Constantine, Christians and churches would prove all too willing to compromise with earthly powers to gain prominence, standing in greater numbers, but at the expense of the core of the gospel. And this temptation is no less prevalent in America. What are we seeing today with the appearance of the decline of Christianity in America? The success of the need to take America back. The prevalence of Christian nation ideology. The desire to baptize the cross and the stars and stripes. And somehow suggest that cultural dominion in America is the most important goal for Christians to aspire to. Consider the fear of alienation that now exists because you profess Christ. Uh, that we might get persecuted by the state. That people say, we could start getting fined. We could start going to jail. 
Yeah, look what Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 1 through 19. Why should you find it surprising when you're being persecuted that we need to uh, entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good? That's what we're supposed to be about in 1 Peter 4 and verse 19. And even in less hostile contexts, this lie is still pernicious because there's this uh, cult of leadership that's been embraced in the world, in business especially, and it's been now done in evangelical churches uh, where, you know, it's all about growing in leadership skills. It's all about how you're going to be a great leader and, and talking about servant leadership and all these things, not recognizing uh, the, the very paradox of the impossibility of what Jesus is really saying here. Um for far too long, Christians and churches have considered the way of Jesus, the way of suffering and death, as the way of last resort, something to be exercised in desperate circumstances. But, you know, when all other things are being equal, we know the way the world works, and so we're just going to go along with the way the world works, never really stopping to think that maybe Jesus the whole time understood quite well how the world worked and intentionally stood against the way the world works to provide something uh, new, something far better, but one that only could be accomplished through the means it took to accomplish it. Sadly, maybe the most extreme of dispensational premillennialists are the only consistent ones among us. Those who suggest that the cross really was plan B because the Jews really weren't ready for plan A. And they who await that Jesus is going to come back and maintain a climactic, violent inauguration of his kingdom to rule over the world. Really, what I'm asking is, do we really believe Acts 2.23, where Paul G Peter said that Jesus was handed over by the determinate plan and foreknowledge of God? Do we really believe 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 19? that in Christ God is reconciling us to the to himself. And that had to be through the cross. And Ephesians 3, 10 through 11, that God, as he realized his eternal purposes in Jesus, in his life, his death, and his resurrection. Do we believe that the cross and the resurrection were not only God's plan A, but in fact his eternal purpose that he has manifest in Jesus? Because if we really believe that, we're not going to be able to help but recognize how the way of the world cannot be reconciled to the way of Christ. And that any capitulation to the powers and principalities governing this world is to feed them against the purposes of God and Christ. Again, we need to remember, Jesus triumphed over the powers and principalities in Colossians 2.15. They've been defeated by Jesus. The only power they have left is the power people give them by feeding them, by capitulating to their lusts and desires. If the way of Jesus is the way to life, then we need to empty ourselves of pretense, even as Jesus emptied himself of substance, in Philippians 2, 5-11, and in humility serve others. If the way of Jesus is the way to life, then we must recognize our real powerlessness in the world, to empty ourselves of any notion of real authority, to trust in God and Christ, that he can be glorified and fill us with his strength if we submit to him in our complete weakness. To learn what Paul learned from his throne in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12, 9-10, that when we are weak is when we are truly strong. Because if the way, to Jesus is the way, way of Jesus is the way to life, we cannot insist on our own way. We need to 
in love, patience, and kindness work with other people to serve and encourage them in the Lord Jesus. And that's going to model a very different way of living than what we can see in the world. And according to the way of love in 1 Corinthians 13, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22-24. Because if the way of Jesus is the way to life, we have nothing to fear in this life. We should not allow ourselves to be deceived into fearing any group of people because of our differences. For we should see in those contrivances, the hands of the powers and principalities, whom Jesus has dethroned and led in triumph on account of the cross. That's what empowers Jesus to say in Matthew 10, 20-29, Do not fear him who... The, the one who can kill you in this life, but fear him who can send both body and soul into Gehenna, to hell. Now, if the way of Jesus is the way to life, then whatever authority and power we do have, we need to exercise as a responsibility and stewardship, and in all humility and service to do all things to glorify God in Christ. Because it's Jesus who currently is serving us as Lord, and serves that Lord in, as in his benevolence and kindness. So this is the way it is with power. The way of the world is to seek to accumulate power to our advantage, no matter the pain and suffering it may cause others. This is the way it has always been, and it will be that way in the world till the Lord comes. And it doesn't matter how high or, my, or low you are on the, in the grand social scale of things, there are all kinds of ways in which we attempt to exercise power in, in our own lives in working with other people or not working with other people, uh, all kinds of power games that can go on. And we need to ask the question, are we using the power and influence that we have to glorify God, or are we using them to feed the powers and principalities Excuse me, over this present darkness? Because Jesus has triumphed over the powers and principalities through his life, death, and resurrection. That his way is service and suffering. Because if we're truly going to be in Christ, our life cannot be about power but about weakness, our trust in God, and trying to do all things in his strength. And that is why we need to conform to Jesus' life and death if we would obtain the resurrection eternal life and to follow the way of suffering and service, the way of humility, the way of responsibility, in order to obtain what is life indeed. We hope that you've been benefited by this message. If you have, please share it on social media with others. Uh, if you have any questions or comments about anything that we've talked about, if you uh, like have a prayer requests, if you'd like to know more about us or be following Jesus as Lord, we encourage you to check us out online at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. You can also find us on social media. If I can be of any service personally, uh, please reach me through my website at DeVerboVitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. Again, thank you. Have a great day.